Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I'm Kevin Weber, like many of you, still self-quarantining and not umpiring any baseball games. <laughs> so, um, you know, as I mentioned before, I assign games for the um, for a big travel league with over 100 teams here in West Michigan. And uh, we were trying to start our games as we did last year in late April. Um, that was pushed to the first, no, second week of May. And then um, the government decided to do um, some, you know, changes to the self-quarantine, open up some things, some things not, you, know, you can go play golf now, but they didn't say anything about playing baseball, which is not surprising. So now we're shooting for um, June 1st start. So maybe 1st of June, me and all of these other umpires here in West Michigan will get out on the field. Man, I'm hoping so, because... As we keep rolling along, it looks like we don't know, man. I mean, we could um, we could not umpire at all this year. That would just be awful. I didn't think that would happen. I mean, I, I, it's 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 been tough. You know, it's been tough for everybody. So, but we're hanging in there, and hopefully things will work out. I know, like some of our local colleges, our universities, you know, that do um, some of the local tournaments do quite a few. One of them, you know, they're going to be closed through the summer, so there's not going to be any there. I don't know about the other ones in our area. Um, so there's going to be less baseball to umpire, uh, for a lot of people. And, um, I will appreciate it once we're out there. Nonetheless, I have a show for you today. I've got some uh, interesting things. Um, a little bit longer show in the last couple of weeks. Um, I got a segment on, um, uh, like a revisiting the Federation player DH rule, which a lot of us didn't get an opportunity to even use this year. Um, talking about, a, a John Bible, uh, article that he had in referee magazine recently about um brushing off the plate and the importance of that and you know what that can do as far as your game management and uh, dealing with players and things so i got a little segment on that and then as always i have a umpire spotlight this time on uh charlie berry who you might not know but quite an interesting guy not just as an umpire major league umpire obviously uh, but in lots of other sports and very successful in many things in his time on this planet. All right. So um, you can take a listen to that and, um, you know, tells a pretty good story. So thanks for tuning in once again uh, for another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. In the most recent uh, issue of Referee Magazine, John Bible, who I featured in Umpire Spotlight uh, recently, uh, I had an interesting little article about um, um, 
sweeping the plate off and brushing the plate and um, you know how you handle that which is something I think is a good little topic for um, some newer umpires or guys that maybe haven't really thought about it too much. So um, he talked about how in his 50 years of umpiring he only had about five brushes. I think I've gone through one so far. I mean they do get worn down a bit so you know you got to get some sometime um, but not too often and he liked to carry his brush in his shirt pocket instead of like his ball bag or his back pocket. Um, and he figured that also gave him a little extra protection in case something hit there because it's like right over your heart. I've tried that before. I always feel like it's a little loose there. I like to put my um, my little umpire booklet with the lineups and stuff in that front pocket if I get the opportunity to. I've tried to put my brush in my bag. I don't really like that. I I usually put it in my back right pocket because it's just I know where it is and that's just what I do. Sometimes though, your pocket comes out. You got to make sure you don't have your little, you know, the inside of your pocket sticking out. Like you know, that looks a little silly. So you got to watch that. And sometimes you know, in certain pants, it works better than others. It can get stuck in there. But that seems to be where I put it. I'm not saying that's the best. That's just what I do. All right. So he talked about how he likes his catchers um, to kind of get a clue about his strike zone based on how he brushes off the plate early in the game, particularly after the initial warm-up pitches where he gives like extra emphasis to brushing off the blacks of the plate. He might make a little comment, um, but he's not going to like tell people, um, you know, his strike zone because that's really not what we should be doing. But he wants to kind of send that subtle um, understated message that, you know, he, he's going to call the black and he's going to do what he can to get strikes. Um, and hopefully catchers understand this. And early in the game, you know, you get an opportunity to call those pitches uh, either way, you know, so that both teams are swinging and uh, the game will move along a little bit better. He says that sometimes he'll say something like, I like the black part of the plate to be really clean. Um, just as a little hint. All right. Now, we know that sometimes ball players are pretty smart, and uh, sometimes they're not, all right? I'm sure you've um, uh, experienced that before. Um, so if they don't get it, then there's not much you can really do about it. Now, it seems most of the time when we get people, or players, that is, uh, complaining about balls and strikes, it's frequently a hitter, all right? But we do get catchers from time to time uh, that um, are ignorant of what they should be doing and start complaining about not getting strike calls. So obviously, uh, you probably have seen this, and maybe some of you out there have done it. Um, if it's a really, you know, dire situation and needed, you can go around and brush off the plate, and you can kind of get face-to-face with the catcher, because that's usually where he's going to be standing, and you can say a few things that might need to be said about um, his conduct. Um, that could be with him complaining about, you know, balls and strikes. That could be with him pulling pitches and his poor glove work or whatever he might be trying to do um, and get your point across. I think this should be used sparingly. It's not something that you want to uh, uh, be doing all the time. I think I've maybe only done it uh, just a just a couple times here and there, handful of times over the years that I've been umpiring. Mr. Bible mentioned on a few occasions, you know, he particularly would do this longer than needed so that in some ways it was pretty obvious to everybody what he was doing. And, um, you know, of course you could get a coach getting all irritated with you about that, you know, saying something to his player and all that and come out and confront you about it. And if that happens, I suggest you do what, uh, what John Bible says. And he says, Hey, would you rather me warn him this way 
or do you want me to, you know, get in his face about it and um, make a bigger deal? And, you know, if a coach is reasonably um, decent about things, he's going to say, okay, yeah, I understand. And it's probably at that point, it should be at that point if you're doing this, fairly obvious to anybody paying attention in the game on either side or in the stands that this catcher is, um, you know, going over the line of what his conduct should be. Anyway, um, some very good advice, some things to think about. Obviously, um, when you brush off the plate, your rear end should, should be facing the pitcher's mound. Um, I see uh, less experienced umpires sometimes be facing the wrong way. Uh, look silly. Don't do that. Um, there's, there's, um, you can actually probably check up some videos and stuff. There's, you, when you sweep out the plate, you know, you straddle the plate, you brush it in a certain way. Uh, you probably develop a certain way to do it. With you brush it with confidence, okay, whatever way you want to do it, and um, you know, you're not brushing it like it's a little fine piece of porcelain or something out there, okay? You brush it off, you get it done, put the the brush back in your pocket, you're ready to go, boom, you're in control. Another thing he mentions, and this is definitely good for the um, uh, newer umpires, do not take your brush out on the bases. Do not brush off the pitcher's plate. Do not brush off bases, all right? If somebody, you know, I, I don't touch the bases when I'm out there. I mean, even if a base comes dislodged, I make players or, or the grounds crew, whoever is out there to take care of it. It's not my job to do that, all right? Plus, if I put the base back in and then something happens and somebody gets hurt and I didn't do, you know, supposedly I didn't do it right, they could, like, try to blame it on me. I don't, it's not my responsibility, all right? And also, you know, I try to keep my umpire uniform clean. I don't want to be out there, you know, get my hands all dirty. And then you get your pants all dirty and everything else. So I don't like that. All right. So it looks pretty bush if you're brushing off the pitcher's plate or um, you're brushing off bases and things like that. If you need that, if there's a player there, say, hey, can you kick a little dirt away from there or something like that? I guess you could go over there and do it with your foot if it's really needed on like second base or first base. And you feel like that might interfere with you making a call. But you should not be getting out of the brush. Um. As far as uh, pitchers, yeah, sometimes you can get a lot of dirt on the pitcher's plate, and it's nice to um, be able to knock some of that off. If it's really needed and you think a guy might be, you know, you know it could be a balk or not based on whether or not he's on on the, the rubber, um, then you might need to do that. Really, the only time I ever do that is if I um, want to say something to a pitcher about about him very closely balking actually he probably did balk and I didn't call it nobody really said anything but I know that if he does it again I'm going to call it and this is usually in younger levels and I might be working all right um or in the summer or something like that but I'll um if the time is appropriate and it's like a good pause in the action or something foul ball something like that um I might go over there and um kick off the pitcher's plate from dirt and under my breath not looking in his eye say you got to come to a stop man you, you know, you're close to balking. You got to be coming to a stop for me. And then I kick off that and go back. And um, th- for all they know, I could be like, hey, man, this is just a little dirty out here. That's why I'm kicking off the plate. They don't know what I'm saying. And usually, you know, they're like, oh, okay, thanks. Or, or they'll say, yeah, okay, I got gotcha. you. You know, something like that. And then, you know, then if he doesn't do it and I call that balk, it's like, dude, I told you. You know, I gave you a shot. You didn't do it. You know, he didn't come to a stop. And, um, you know, I was being fair. So I don't want the coaches or players or anybody else to know that I – that I'm going over there and mentioning that he's close to that. Obviously, in college games, higher-level stuff, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, there's certain games that we work that that is a little bit more appropriate to do. And um, I suggest that maybe, you know, you you got to do it subtle. 
It's got to be real subtle, though, so that nobody thinks you're coaching players and telling them stuff. Because technically, if you if if you see a buck, you got to call it. But you know, we all know there are some situations where it's just not the right thing to do um, as far as the flow of the game and the level that you're working. So you got to play it by year, I guess, as you do it. So some interesting stuff there by John Bible, um, and that's in this newest episode. Um, episode, I guess, no, um, newest edition of uh, Referee Magazine, so make sure you check that out. So maybe you were lucky enough to work some high school games this year uh, before everything started getting canceled uh, for the pandemic. I was not that lucky. Uh, I had a lot of them on my schedule, but uh, not able to work any of them. Uh, remember, of course, this year we had the player DH rule that was implemented. Um, and, uh, I guess a lot of us like me are going to have to figure out that rule and make sure we keep studying up for it, um, for next season, which hopefully goes well, right? So pretty much every high school umpire, you should now be at least a few weeks. Um, you know, you would have been a few weeks into the 2020 season, um, and you should have been, you know, having some opportunities to witness the new player DH rule. But of course, you know, that hasn't happened. Um, it got lots of attention throughout the off season as people, uh, tried to come to grips with all the nuances and the ramifications amid all of those, uh, discussions that people were having, uh, the national federation in February came out with its, uh, baseball rules interpretations for 2020, and, you know, some state associations uh, may choose to adopt their, their own interpretations. Uh, those issued by the Federation and um, are for, you know, the high school interpretations. Um, but two of the biggest areas of concern with the new player DH rule uh, was the designations involved, involving the use of courtesy runners for designated hitters who were also listed as either the pitcher or the catcher on the lineup card and legal substitutions regarding the player DH. All right. So I decided to take a couple minutes here and review some of those. So let's say we have a play like this. The home team coach is using Jones, his starting pitcher, as the player DH. In the second inning, Jones comes to bat and hits a clean double. Uh, with Jones on second base, the coach goes to the plate umpire and requests that a courtesy runner run for Jones. All right, so this would could be a, definitely a common thing that could have happened to us. What would be the ruling? So a courtesy runner for Jones, that's not allowed. Uh, when his team is on defense, Jones is a pitcher. When Jones is at bat, he is batting as a designated hitter, not as a pitcher. So a courtesy runner is not allowed for a designated hitter. You could pinch run for him, but then you would lose your DH, right? So this is the official Federation interpretation regarding the courtesy runner in relation to the new rule, which, of course, is 314B, right? More specifically, as stated in 314B2, the role of the designated hitter is terminated for the remainder of the game when the starting defensive player DH is substituted for either as a hitter or a runner. So using that above scenario that I just um, mentioned here, uh, the home team coach may use a substitute to pinch run for Jones, and due to the one-time reentry rule available for members of the starting lineup, reenter Jones as both the pitcher and in his original spot in the batting order. However, 
Jones no longer retains the privileges of designated hitter as that role has been eliminated for the remainder of the game. So now let's take a look at uh, what happens when uh, the substitutions become a bit uh, more convoluted related to the player DH. So here's another play. Kelly is the left fielder designated hitter. In the third inning, Jones substitutes for Kelly as the left fielder. In the fourth inning, Kelly returns as the left fielder. In the fifth inning, Armstrong substitutes for Kelly and left field. Here's my question. Can Kelly remain as the DH? The answer, no. Kelly, having been removed from the game twice, is no longer eligible to play in any capacity. And since Armstrong now must bat for himself, the role of the DH has ended. So the official Federation interpretation states that once Kelly is removed from the game, um, his defensive role, um, in his defensive role, a second time, he's no longer an eligible player, even though he has never left the lineup as a designated hitter. Right, so that doesn't really matter. Because a substitute must now bat in the spot that was previously occupied by a designated hitter, as stated in 314B2, the role of the designated hitter is terminated for the remainder of the game. So they have all these rule interpretations. If you still haven't looked at them on the um, Federation Baseball Rules um, you know, interpretation website, um, you can look those up pretty easily and see. And make sure that, hey, man, we also be experts at this by the time we finally get to do some high school games next year. This episode's Umpire Spotlight is going to be Charlie Berry. Uh, Charlie Berry had one of the most extraordinary sports careers of the 20th century. He was a two-sport athlete who applied his craft as a player and official for more than 40 years. He was a National Football League end, a Major League Baseball catcher, a college football coach, a Minor League Baseball manager, an NFL head linesman, and a Major League Baseball umpire. Quite amazing. These dual sports uh, put Barry in contact with the greatest sportsmen of his time, and he earned the respect of everyone he met. Um, Mr. Barry was born in 1902 in uh, Pennsylvania, but um, when he was young, his family moved to uh, New Jersey, and he grew up in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Uh, when he was just a kid, just old enough to even hold a glove, he got a baseball glove, and he inherited his father's love for sports and his athletic skills. His dad was a good ball player in his day. At Phillipsburg uh, High School, he made the varsity team in football, basketball, and baseball, and he received 11 varsity letters in his four years there. As a sophomore, he helped uh, lead the football team to the New Jersey Championship, where um, when he was a senior, he was elected captain of the football, basketball, and baseball teams. A local newspaper article uh, declared Barry the greatest athlete that ever wore uh, a garnet and gray uniform. In the summers, he worked as, as a, at a local foundry and after hours played catcher and outfield for the company baseball team uh, in, that, in his area in the industrial league. Barry played uh, college athletics. He uh, was you know, recruited, I guess, by several Eastern colleges, and he, and he decided to go to Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, 
And as a freshman, he was the starting left end on the football team and proved to be an excellent receiver. He also played uh, defensive end, you know, common at that time, right? The 1921 team that he was on was undefeated and outscored its opponents 239 to 26 and won a consensus national championship. In the spring of 1922, Barry joined the baseball team and earned the starting catcher job and helped the team to a 14 and 8 record. So, uh, an excellent athlete in both sports. In his senior year, Barry was elected class president and named captain of both the football and baseball teams. And in January 1925, Walter Camp named Barry to his 1924 All American football team as a first string left end. After graduating in June 1925 with a degree in economics, uh, he was signed to a contract by the Philadelphia Athletics uh, by their scout Mike Drennan, and he reported immediately to Hall of Famer Connie Max Athletics and made his major league uh, debut uh, against the Cleveland Indians in June 1925. Uh, in the end, he only played um, about 10 games for the Athletics in 25, and he was soon to find glory with the Pottsville that's in Pennsylvania, Maroons of the very new and fledgling National Football League. So the Maroons were a collection of all-stars, and Barry, despite never having played a down of professional football and being the youngest member of the team, was named the team captain, and he more than proved himself as a leader and a player. Against the Green Bay Packers, he scored three touchdowns and four extra points and kicked a field goal. He led the NFL in scoring, and Pottsville, or Pottstown, sorry, won the 1925 league championship. But the NFL stripped the Maroons of the title for playing an unauthorized game against Notre Dame, featuring the four horsemen. So if you look at your NFL records, there you go. Following season, uh, the Athletics option buried to um, the Portland Beavers of the Pacific Coast League, and he played some minor league ball. Uh, he got married, and... Um, uh, unfortunately, during the, the season, he suffered um, the first serious injury of his career. He broke his wrist. Um, so he recovered before the end of the season, but, um, you know, he, he did play 99 games. He went to the NFL back with the Maroons, who uh, won 10 games and lost two. And uh, he they finished, like, in third. And that was his last stint as a professional um, football player. So the Athletics had some doubts about his wrist, and he was opting out to the Texas Texas League um, and hit 330 and did well down there. When baseball was over for the season, he took a job as the head football coach at Grover City College in western Pennsylvania, and he returned to um, the Wolverines each year through the 1931 season, compiling a five-year record of 27 wins and seven losses and eight ties, and they won the tri conference title in three of those years so he was a heck of a football coach as well the rights to Barry's baseball contract were sold to the Boston Red Sox and he proved a, a pretty dependable backup catcher um, playing about 80 games in the late 20s there his best season uh, was 1931 he appeared in his most games 111 he hit 283 had his most at bats his most hits his most runs scored of his career and um, the season was memorable for a play involving Barry on April 22nd when um, Babe Ruth tried to score after a fly out to center field. Um, catcher, Barry, 
the former football player, put a shoulder into the Yankee star and threw him skyward, and Ruth came down in a heap uh, safe at home plate. Um, Ruth took his position in left field in the bottom of the inning, but his left leg gave way and he collapsed, and Ruth was carried from the field by his teammates and was taken to the hospital where he was diagnosed with a severe Charlie horse in his left thigh um, from you know the shoulder, I'm sure, of Barry into it. Uh, Ruth, unable to return to action for two weeks, did not blame Barry, saying it's all part of the game, and that was what he was paid to do. I'd loved, uh, I'd have done the same thing in his place. Baseball isn't ladies ping pong. It's a game played by men who want to win. Obviously, different rules now. It can't be a plowing over guys, right? Barry bounced around in the big leagues. He was uh, traded to the White Sox and had some good moments there. Eventually, he uh, made his way back uh, with a contract with the Athletics and played there into uh, 1935 and 36. Um, but in the middle of 1936 season in June, he was released by the Athletics as a player and he was hired as a coach. And he remained in that position through the first half of the 1940 season. So college football coach and also um, major league baseball coach. Uh, Barry not only helped the catchers uh, for the athletics, but he also instructed the pitchers. And during spring training, he would hold regular classes with uh, the pitching staff. Barry had uh, one last hurrah as a player on uh, September 8, 1938. He replaced Hale Wagner at catcher and made two plate appearances going over two. In 1939, Barry was ejected from a game twice. His only ejections as a coach, he was ejected a few times as a player and gotten some you know, rhubarbs with some umpires, um, George Moriarty being one of them that I've mentioned on the show before. Um, anyway, on July 15th, uh, Bill Summers tossed Barry for arguing a call at third base. And on August 6th, Harry Geisel gave him the thumb for, um, for protesting a home run call. And then in 1940, uh, Connie Mack asked Barry to take over as manager of the A's farm team, the Wilmington, um, Delaware, uh, Blue Rocks of the Interstate League. And he took over the team in um, a 28-29 and 29 team and, and piloted them to a 68-52 and 52 record, which was good enough for second place in the league. So good football coach and uh, obviously a good baseball coach as well. Um, during this time, he still remained involved with football. Um, he um, started to officiate high school and college football games. And then in uh, January 1941, he was hired by the National Football League as a head linesman for the coming season. Uh, at about the same time, he uh, resigned as manager uh, of his of the minor league team and became an umpire in the Eastern League. So NFL linesman and minor league umpire. Uh, he had worked only a, a few spring training games when the International League um, saw Barry work and purchased his contract. Um, and you know, Barry explained his switch to officiating. He said, I found out that umpires win every argument, so I decided to go over to their side. So he quickly rose through the ranks of the minor leagues um, and also in the National Football League. Uh, he was the headlinesman for the 1942 NFL Championship game in only his second season. And then um, he was the headlinesman in 11 more NFL Championship games before his career was over. In baseball, he spent less than two seasons in the International League before being hired to umpire in the American League, 
made his uh, Major League umpire debut uh, September 10, 1942 in Chicago on a doubleheader between the Senators and the White Sox. Uh, working in a three-man crew with Bill Summers and Art Passarella, Barry covered third base, then moved first base in the nightcap. Um, although he umpired in only seven games that September, he had proved himself. For the next 20 years, he was a full-time Major League umpire. In his second full year as a Major League umpire, uh, Barry umpire, umpired the 1944 All-Star Game. Worked the bases starting in the first and then moved to second base in the fifth. I guess they switched them around back then. It was the first of five All-Star games that he would umpire, the others being 1948-52-56 and the second All-Star game in 1959. Sometimes they would play two back in the day. In 1945, he joined the U.S. Army Special Services and made a goodwill trip to Greenland and Iceland to entertain the troops stationed there and give clinics on officiating. Uh, after the war, he continued to make trips, um, you know, on behalf of the U.S. military. Um, in the 50s and early 60s, he made four trips to Germany and then three trips to Japan. Barry umpired four no-hitters and um, was at a different base for each one. He was at first base for uh, Bo Belinsky's no-hitter in 1962, second base for Allie Reynolds' second no-hitter in 1951, and third base for Jack Kralik's gem in 1962, and he was at home plate for Bob Feller's third and last no-hitter in 1951. Uh, he was almost part of a perfect game. On July 27, 1958, Billy Pierce of the White Sox had one going with two outs in the ninth before the Senators' Ed Fitzgerald lined the ball down the first baseline. Barry umpiring at first, called it fair, and the perfect game was gone. Um, he took time off from umpiring to serve as headlinesman of the 1949 College All-Star Game at uh, Chicago's Soldier Field, which featured the best college football players against the previous year's NFL champions. So that's interesting. That would be interesting to do nowadays, right? Um, that left a three-man umpiring crew for the White Sox-Indians game, and when Cleveland lost on a disputed play, Bill Veck owner of the Indians, protested the game on the grounds that Barry should have been at the game. The Yale president disallowed the protest, not surprisingly, right? And Barry also worked the 1951 College All-Star game after working both games of a doubleheader between the Indians and the um, White Sox. During his uh, 21 years as a Major League umpire, Barry ejected 55 players. Um, his ejections range from eight in 1956 to none in 1945 and 1959. Uh, he sent four future Hall of Famers packing, uh, Casey Stingo, Lou Boudreau, who he ejected three times, his old White Sox battery mate Ted Lyons, and Al Lopez. Uh, Lopez was Barry's last career ejection. Um, manager Paul Richards was thumbed by Barry the most times, four, and the most men Barry ejected during one game was three, and he did that twice in 1952 and 62. He umpired in five World Series, 1946, 50, 54, 58, and 62. In 1958, Barry was the head linesman for the NFL title game, becoming the only man to officiate both major championships in the same year. Can you imagine that nowadays, being the, the, uh, the white hat for the Super Bowl? and um, 
<laughs> maybe get the plate or something on Game 7 of the World Series. That'd be quite amazing. The 1962 World Series was Barry's swan song. In December of 62, after 21 years of wearing the, the blue suit, he called it quits. He'd appeared in 3,079 regular season games, 29 World Series games, five All-Star games, as well as countless spring training and exhibition games. Um, he retired as one of the most respected umpires in the game. In 1960 and 61, the Sporting News conducted the poll of writers, managers, and coaches to evaluate the Major League umpires. In both polls, Barry was named the number one American League umpire. Um, he went to work for the American League as an assistant to the supervisor of umpires, and he did some scouting of umpires and inspected field conditions you know, at the ballparks. Uh, he also worked for the National Football League, observing and evaluating officials, and twice he traveled to Mexico to give clinics on umpiring um, for Major League Baseball. He also gave officiating clinics in Pennsylvania, in the Pennsylvania area. Um, he kept busy on the banquet circuit. Um, his gift of gab and storytelling abilities made him a um, very sought-after guest speaker. He also participated as an umpire in a few of the old-timer games, and he kept his hand in umpiring by twice calling plays at the NCAA College World Series. So, yeah, he's got that too. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I guess he didn't, you know, uh, referee, um, or was a, a referee in the in Stanley Cup or something, or you know, in the NBA championship. In the fall of 1970, just before uh, the league championship series, major league umpires went on strike, uh, demanding more pay for um, postseason assignments. And for the American League Championship Series between the Orioles and Twins, the league office put together a replacement umpiring crew consisting of two minor league umpires and two retired umpires. We had John Stevens and Barry, and then on um, for the retired guys. On October 3rd, Barry traveled to Minnesota, and in his last major league umpiring assignment, he took his position at third base. At the age of 67 and 350 days, he was the second oldest umpire ever to appear in a box score. Uh, the record lasted until 2007 when Bruce Fremming moved into second spot and Barry moved to third. Um, the strike ended the day, next day, and Barry returned to his normal life. So that was it. I'm sure he thought that was pretty exciting. Uh, through the years, Barry received many honors. Uh, received one vote in 1955 and three votes in 58 for induction in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, which I, I still think he should definitely be considered. In 1966, um, the Eastern Pennsylvania chapter of Pennsylvania Intercollegiate Athletic Association recognized him for his contribution to football officiating. And also in 66, he was inducted into the Pennsylvania Sports Hall of Fame. His alma mater honored, honored him in 1977, inducting him into their Hall of Fame. Um, and in 2000, he was named, named him as um, their college's uh, greatest athlete of the 20th century. In 1980, Barry was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. So very impressive there, too. In interviews, he'd often explain what makes a good official and the keys to his success on the field. He wrote, With me, studying and reading the rules is a daily routine. I would feel I wasn't doing my job if I didn't look at the rule book every day. Once you get uh, the wording, you get the feeling you're um, never in doubt. I feel that an umpire should know the rules so well that he could recite every rule in the rule book word for word. 
um, talking about the on-field necessities, he explained the main thing to remember are are the are that um, are these. You must know the rules. You must know where you should be on the field, and you must be there to call the play. And then he added, one qualification for a good sports official is that he does not call plays too quickly. Instead of anticipating the play, let it happen. Follow it intently to its completion, and then make the call quickly. I think that's a rule which can be followed in all ways of life. I definitely agree. So anyway, summarizing his career, this is what he said about it. He says, I got just um, as much kick out of officiating as I did out of playing. Uh, It was never an effort, never a burden. He also said, I think I'm a lucky guy. I I like my job. The, The pay is good. And I wouldn't change places with any man. And I think... Those of us that have gotten this officiating bug, whether it be umpiring in other sports or other sports, I think we would all agree agree with that, right? Anyway, in June 1972, uh, Barry suffered a stroke at his home in New Jersey. And then in late July, he was transferred to the hospital in um, Evanston, Illinois, to be near his oldest daughter. After an operation and subsequent physical therapy, he suffered a massive heart attack and died uh, in September 1972, and he was buried back in uh, his home area in New Jersey and survived by his wife and his three daughters. Um, In uh, December 1958, the New York Giants and the Baltimore Colts met in the NFC Championship game. Uh, It had been called the greatest game ever played, and late in the fourth quarter, the Giants had the ball, and if they could get a first down, they could run out the clock and win the game, and they gave the ball to Frank Gifford, who charged into the line. After the play, Barry, the head linesman, spotted the ball short of the first down, and the Giants had to turn the ball over, and the Colts ended up tying the game and went on to win it in overtime. Barry's call drew protests from the Giants and was second-guessed for years afterward. But in 2008, on the 50th anniversary of the momentous game, um, ESPN produced a two-hour documentary about it, and they examined the disputed play and through forensics analysis of uh, and photographs and film determined that Barry's decision was indeed correct. And But, of course, Charlie knew that. You know, I'm sure he knew that right when he made the call. Anyway, an extremely interesting man, and that's our umpire spotlight this week, Charlie Barry. Thanks once again for listening to this episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. Um, I've been trying to be as consistent as possible and get one episode out each week for you. Uh, Hopefully in the next few weeks we'll have some opportunities to uh, umpire and uh, have some things happen to us that uh, I can bring to the show. But uh, as of right now, you know, we're just uh, in limbo. That's just kind of the the world that we're living right now, unfortunately. Um, they added some new analytics uh, to uh, the podcast uh, platform that I use at Anchor. And uh, I thought you might find it interesting, like uh, the demographics as far as the ages of people that listen to the show. Um, not surprisingly, we only have 4% that are you know 17 and under people that listen. But hey, that's actually a little bit better than I thought it would be. 18 to 22-year-olds, we got 2%. 23 to 27-year-olds, 2%. 28 to 34-year-olds, 11%. So... As we all know, we need to get uh, 
the younger crowd involved in officiating all sports, definitely in umpiring. Um, we all can work on that, maybe uh, see what we can do as far as you know when the season actually gets going. Um, but uh, my biggest group is the 45 to 59, and that is the age of most umpires. Uh, 32% of my listeners are in that age bracket. 35 to 44, we got 23%, so that's not too bad. And then the 60-plus folks out there, uh, 20%. All right? So, you know, kind of what uh, what I would expect, I guess, um, and uh, showing that uh, we got to do our recruiting and uh, make sure that we're getting new blood in here so that when we're all um, old and out of shape and our bones are giving us trouble, uh, that we have some umpires. Speaking of that, are you keeping in shape? Uh, it's tough with the self-quarantine stuff. People are putting on weight. I'm sure I put on some pounds here myself, even though I, I walk pretty much at least once a day, usually multiple times if the weather's good. And I try to do some stretching and things. But with everything all closed down here in Michigan, like it is in lots of states, um, I can't go to the YMCA to do my stretching and stuff. Um, and just the general idea that you're more stuck in your house, you're sitting around more than you normally would be, um, makes it difficult. So I've noticed that I've been a little more stiff and everything lately, and I've been trying to work on that so that hopefully in June here, when things you know, maybe start opening back up, uh, I can get back out on the field and, and not uh, not hurt myself, right? <laughs> or be too sore once I work my first plate, which I, I hope to do. Um, I know we there's always some of those plate dodgers out there, right? The guys that don't like to do the plate. I know I, I, I try not to be a plate dodger um, if possible. And uh, I know I won't be dodging a plate. I like to get out there and get behind a plate and call some balls and strikes. I mean, the first game I work, I want to do it. You know, maybe the first few, who knows? So I'm looking forward to it. And um, I'll be loud and proud when I get out there with my strike three call. If somebody's standing there, I'm going to get all the strikes I can, right? So hang in there, guys. Um, let me know if you uh, have any feedback for me. Uh, email me at spawnfusion06 at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Kevin R. Weber. Find me on Facebook um, under the the Hammer, um, what, you know, the podcast uh, Facebook page, and uh, leave voicemail through the Anchor app. You gotta like favorite the show and stuff. And you can leave a little voicemail, sixty seconds or less, about whatever, and and I'd love to use it on the show and talk about whatever. You know, maybe you have a scenario you want to have me look at and, and tell you what I think and whatever. You know, that'd be great as I've done earlier, um, and just you know. We got to just be ready. Getting our, you know, I know we can only look at the rule book so much, but uh, make sure you got things down, your mechanics down. Um, you know, now the weather's getting better, so if you need to go to a ball field where there's probably nobody there, you can like work through things on a ball field if you want to, or take a take an umpire friend with you and do such things and see what you can do um, with proper social distancing, of, of course, right, and everything that we're supposed to be following out there. So uh, until next time, keep calling strikes.